Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. Here you go. Here you go. Mia Culpa. Is that two words or one? I'm saying it's one word for the nothing personal word of the day. It's a mea culpa. I had an error yesterday. Just wanted to let you know. The New York Knicks were playing at home when they lost by 21 points to the Cleveland Cavaliers. And then their front office held that press conference where they talked about the fact that the team was not putting forth a consistent effort. I told a story about how strange it is that executives would go on the road for the first time and then hold a press conference and how a baseball or basketball team would react to it. I still believe what I said, that what the Knicks did with their president and GM giving that press conference made no sense to me at all. The fact is they were playing at home. A shout out on Twitter. Someone DM'd me the mistake. Hey, accidents will happen. They're always hit and run. Elvis Costello wasn't wrong. So if I say something that you don't like or you don't agree with, you can still tell me. But if it's wrong, then let me know. And the mea culpa may be the double word of the day yet again. The Houston Astros are cheaters. Is that breaking news? Not for anyone who's been in the industry. After 18 years in Major League Baseball, I can tell you that there is something that all teams try to do, and some teams do it better than others. You might be thinking, oh, that must be signing free agents or trading players and getting the better of a trade. I'm talking about stealing signs. And any possible advantage that you can get, you're going to try to get. So let me set the stage for you as to what happened today and why this is such a big topic of conversation for reasons that are unbeknownst to me, but are about to be known to you. The Athletic reported today with Ken Rosenthal and Evan Drellick that the Astros in 2017 were using sophisticated video equipment to steal signs. Well, here's what was happening. They had a camera in center field. They were pointing the camera toward the catcher, catching putting down signs. Then that image was on a screen right near the dugout in Minute Maid Park. So the players would get to know what pitch is coming. And then you have to communicate that pitch to the batter. How do you possibly communicate without an earpiece from the dugout to a batter? Well, you have to do it with noises. So the Astros are being accused of actually banging a garbage can in and around the dugout every time there's going to be an off-speed pitch. That's what sign-stealing really is. You try to do two things. You're You're either trying to steal location or pitch type. Some players don't want to know what's coming. Very few. Most do want to know. But what pitchers and players also want to be very cognizant of is location, which is why when you're watching a baseball game, The catcher, you'll notice, is always looking up. He's looking up at the hitter. He's looking up to make sure the hitter is not watching him where he's setting up. Then the catcher will give his sign, and very often we will teach our catchers, and sometimes they can do it, that you set up one place so the batter can feel where the catcher is, but then you've got the catcher move as the pitch is being thrown. That throws the hitter off. 
But in terms of stealing signs, you're really stealing what kind of pitch it's going to be. So why is it this is such a big story today? And the answer is, like every good conspiracy theory, it finally involves a source that's not anonymous. They finally got players to talk. And one of the players who spoke is a pitcher named Mike Fierce. Mike Fears is a pitcher who pitched for the Astros and was not offered a free agent contract once he became a free agent after the 17 season. So does he have an axe to grind with the Astros? Probably not. He had a good season on the athletics. Is there a reason he would talk now? I think someone just finally asked him the question and he decided it was time to answer. And what his answer was, so let's say the Athletic, they're asking around all these Astro players, they finally find fires, and they find him, and they ask him, were you doing anything with sign stealing in 2017? Because you know the Boston Red Sox were, and they actually got in trouble by Major League Baseball. And he then started talking. And when you're trying to get a source to speak, and on the record, you just keep going. And fires did keep going. And basically what he said is Houston will do anything it can to get an unfair advantage. That's not a surprise. That's not a major epiphany. I spent 18 years trying to get a major advantage. Why does it matter that we're trying to steal signs? Of course we're trying to steal signs. Well, MLB didn't want anything of it because every team was complaining to MLB about their signs being stolen. To which my answer always was, then do a better job get more complicated signs. So now that's happened, where when you're watching games, how often do you see the catcher touch his arm, then his shin, then his knee, then he goes to his nose, and then he puts fingers down, they have nail polish on. Sometimes you'll notice a catcher gets crossed up because the catcher doesn't know what sign he gave, the pitcher can't remember what the indicator was, and what I mean by that is, Pitchers look for an indicator, and it's the first sign after the indicator. So a complicated sign would be the following. Four, two, one, two, three, four. And what the pitcher has to remember is after the second two, that's what you're pitching. So four, two, one, four, two, one, four. They have to remember the sign was one. That's a fastball. I could barely remember it. It's like playing Simon. I could never remember red, orange, then yellow, then green. I'd make it like to five, and then ADD would kick in. That's what's happening during a ball game. So the catcher thinks it's going to be a breaking ball. The pitcher throws a fastball, and there ends up being a cross-up. That's why in baseball there's so many more cross-ups than there used to be. So what can we do about that? Well, the Marlins in 2003, we had a plan. We had a player who, to this day, is I, I love him. His name is Luis Castillo. He was our starting second baseman. He never knew what city he was in. We just He knew he had to beat a ballpark to play the game at 7 o'clock every night, and he came to play every single day. When he'd have a bad game, he'd be despondent. He was, just, he was the glue to our World Series championship team. But he could never remember the complicated signs. You've seen managers touch their nose, their ears, their nose, their chin. Third base coachmen, they're touching their shoulders, their sides, their hat. Well, our signs for Luis Castillo, just a little side note for everyone watching and listening. When he was on first base and we needed him to do a, the run part of a hit and run, here's how we gave Luis Castillo the sign. Run. That's what the first base coach did. That was the sign. We just told him, run. When it was time to bunt, and the third, when he was hitting, and the third base coach would go through a bunch of signs, he wouldn't do that with Luis. He would go in, and he would yell, bunt. And he was so good that it didn't matter that the other team know, knew what was coming. 
So all of that's going on now with sign stealing is a question of competitiveness. It's a question of, is there an unfair edge? My argument is the Astros do not have an unfair edge because every team is either doing it or trying to do it. MLB is now stepping in, and before the 2019 season, they came up with a new set of rules that talked about cameras in center field that talked specifically about sign stealing. And now they're investigating the Astros. After the Brendan Taubman incident, remember the assistant general manager? We've talked about it before on this show. He was fired. He's now being interviewed by MLB. Not for a job, I assure you. Simply to get information. This is according to The Athletic, and it is absolutely true. MLB, the investigative unit, they have an entire unit now. It's called the Department of Investigations, the DOI. They will interview Brendan Taubman, and they're trying to ascertain two things. One, what were the Astros doing? And then most importantly, two, who knew about it? Now, that's the rub. MLB is far more interested in owner and team president involvement than it is in actually whether signs are being stolen and then conveyed to the hitter. That is a big story in the ownership ranks all the time. What are owners actually involved in? Because plausible deniability is something that we always wanted our owner to have. There are things that happened all the time that we would not want to talk to our owner about. Because if he's ever asked by the commissioner, we wanted him to have plausible deniability where he'd look at the commissioner and say, I had no idea this was going on. I never wanted plausible deniability because I knew that I was eventually going to be the buck stops with me. So I had to know what was going on. So there's signs being stolen. I know about it. In the Astros organization, you think Jeff Lunau has no idea that there's an intricate camera being in place? Well, do you know how cameras get to center field? They get purchased. Do you know how a camera gets purchased? Through a capital expenditure request. Do you know who approves capital expenditure requests? Yes, Jeff Lunau and the front office of the Houston Astros. Don't let them tell you that it's the underlings who approve those requests, that they just get a big pile of money from the ATM and go buy whatever they want. Do you think the screen that ends up in the dugout showing the picture from the center field camera just materializes? Do you think they have an account on Amazon and it just arrives? There's an entire process. It's a business expense. So the deniability cannot go past the president because he or she will know about it. Now, owners don't often know about capital expenditures or specific requests that are made of speed guns or certain minor league equipment. They're watching games. They are fans for the most part. But people whose job it is to take advantage of a situation, they always know what's going on. Well, one guy who's got to figure out what's going on is uh, Chaim Bloom, and he's right now in Scottsdale, Arizona, trying to get an unfair advantage because he's now the chief baseball officer of the Boston Red Sox instead of being working in Tampa Bay. And the big question facing them right now, do you have to trade Mookie Betts? Why would you ever dream of trading an MVP? Who would ever trade an MVP? Okay, anyway, forget I asked that because, yes, MVPs do get traded and so do future MVPs. Why would an MVP ever be traded? Yes, payroll, business, money. So Chaim Bloom has a payroll that he has to work to. His owner, during the interview process, talked to him about, this is what our team is, these are the resources we have. Do you think it's a coincidence that the Red Sox hired a low-revenue small market employee? I don't. 
the Red Sox need to start operating a little more like the Tampa Bay Rays. Not completely like the Rays. They're not going to be able to. The fans won't withstand that. They won't support that. But John Henry, the owner, and Tom Warner, the owner of the Red Sox, need them to get below the luxury tax threshold. And now that J.D. Martinez has not opted out of his contract, the Red Sox have got to make a deal. They've got to get their payroll down. They were praying that J.D. would not opt, would opt out and leave. Now that he hasn't, they've got to trade a David Price. They've got to see if they can move a Nate Valdi. But their best trade piece is Mookie Betts. What can they expect to get? Well, our view was, if you know that you're not going to be able to afford a player in free agency, you know that about three years in advance. We always did three-year budgets minimum, so we know what's happening with payroll during that next three years. Now, certain things can happen where maybe you make the World Series, you have a little extra revenue, maybe you win the lottery, anything like that. Maybe you find sort of a pile of money underneath the pitcher's mound, but you generally have a payroll. And the question is, how do you build a team toward that payroll? Well, the Red Sox are very well aware that Mookie Betts may not generate the type of return that they would like to get for a player of his caliber. Why? Because who's going to trade for Mookie, pay him about $26 million, which is what he's going to earn, and then give away players back to the Red Sox and then lose Mookie a year later to free agency? Because Mookie's not going to sign with the team he's traded with. He's going to test free agency. So we made a decision always that when we knew players, we were not going to re-sign them. We would either trade them early or we'd hold on to them to the bitter end and let them walk and take a draft pick. We did it with Derek Lee, first baseman of a championship team, a great player. We just knew we would not be able to afford him. A.J. Burnett, we were doing that with Jose Fernandez. We never got to see it through, of course, but that's an example of a pitcher we knew we wouldn't be able to afford. We were going to let him pitch all the way to free agency and then let him go for a pick. Were there trades discussed? Of course there were. Were there possible trades that we would have done? Yes. However, the general plan would be either you're holding or you're folding. So with bets, what they've done is put themselves in a position where they're neither here nor there. So now if they need to shed Betts' money, they're not going to get the type of return. But then you have to switch sort of your mental thought process. You have to go back and say, we're not going to get the big return we wanted for bets. So we are sacrificing a season of production in order to get rid of the money. Now, that's a decision teams like Tampa make all the time. That's a decision that teams like Miami have to make. I just went like this for Miami. It's not my team anymore. It's, it's our Colaris, not my Colaris. So the decisions that are made are always based on that, on forming a team around your payroll. So what Bloom is doing now in Scottsdale, Arizona, is he already knows what he's going to do. The misconception out there right now in the media, and maybe under the impression of the fans, is that Bloom is going around meeting with other teams, and he doesn't know yet whether or not he's going to trade Mookie Betts. That's wrong. Every single GM knows exactly what they're doing, not just during this winter meetings or GM meetings. They have a plan for each player. It's not just fly by the seat of your pants. You don't just decide that you're going to trade Mookie Betts or not trade him, sitting there having a conversation with your old friend Andrew Friedman of the Dodgers. You know exactly what you have to do and the order in which you do it. It's like a flow chart. And these new analytic GMs certainly know how to do flow charts. Well, guess what? This old school badger did too. The first thing we're going to do is try to trade Nathan Evaldi. Then we're going to try to trade David Price. If we have to, we're going to move bets, but we've got to get it done no later than the start of January. 
Why would I choose January? We did a bunch of our trades over Thanksgiving, over Christmas, because I couldn't take the chance that our payroll would be out of whack going into spring training. I couldn't go to the owner to say, listen, we'll cut payroll in spring training. We'll cut payroll during the course of a season. It never happens because the owner gets too excited about the possibility of winning and then gets angry with you that you were over budget. So the plan in place to cut payroll is now. The question is, in what order will the Red Sox do it? And it will be a very interesting wait to see. My bet is that they hold on to Mookie Betts because at the end of the day, the Red Sox will believe that to them, having him for one more year and getting over what happened last year is going to be far more important than getting under the luxury tax threshold. And MLB and the union will not be unhappy that there'll be another team paying the luxury tax. I can't get over what happened last night in the NFL game. I, uh, I'm watching Monday Night Football. I enjoy it. And it's not just because of nothing personal. I, I've always loved watching football. I've always had a hard time, though, with the NFL officials. I love the fact the good stories, right? They have other jobs. I remember Jerry Seaman. If you don't know who that is, he was a famous referee who did one of my giant Super Bowl wins. I think the Super Bowl in 91, the wide right Scott Norwood Super Bowl, I think was Jerry Seaman. And I, the referees have a life outside of football, and then they on Sundays, they have a crew that goes from game to game. I've never noticed NFL referees more than I've noticed them this year. There's been a bunch of rule changes that have had been a problem in three different ways. One, the NFL officials themselves are unclear as to how to call it. Two, the players are unclear as to what the rule actually is. And three, the broadcasters have no chance to explain what's going on down on the field. This happened in Major League Baseball. If you recall the second base issue where the batter would be, uh, the runner would be off the bag by an inch and then get tagged out. Is that replayable? Is it not replayable? Is the runner out at second if he's off the base for five seconds or not? It happened in baseball when you're running over the catcher. Did the catcher get in the way of the runner coming in from third base? There was mass confusion. What did MLB do? It clarified the rules. NFL is right now in a situation where not only do they have to clarify some rules, but they have to examine some rules. Let's start with pass interference. Can someone explain to me why pass interference is a spot foul? Why is it not a good strategy to heave the ball downfield and hope for a flag, knowing that you could end up in the if it's in the end zone, you're first and goal at the one. When you have no chance to score on a first and goal at the 10, or it's first and 10 at the 30 with time running out, either in the half or in the game. Why not heave it in and wait for the pass interference call? It's called the chuck and duck. I used to call it the chuck and pray, but it didn't rhyme. We call it the chuck and duck. It's when you're hoping to get a call that bails you out of a situation that you put yourself into. And in the NFL, it's happening all the time. It's offensive pass interference if there's a little tiny push-off. Defensive pass interference, to me, is the most incorrectly called play in the National Football League. It's very simple. You cannot beat the ball to the offensive player. Just live with that fact. When you're looking at the replay, if you touch the player before the player has access to the ball, that's interference. None of this is it catchable. None of this, he was impeding him. None of any of that. It's a very simple rule. Offensive pass interference. Sometimes the offensive player is actually playing defense when the pass is so bad, and they become a defensive back, so the same rules would apply when it's going to be maybe an interception. 
you cannot touch the player until the player has a chance to catch and touch the ball. The other thing happens on offense is players are pushing off. But I watched some calls happen last night. It was nary a push. It was like a feather of a touch. I've seen more contact in Little League flag football in the park five miles from this studio. And yet they're calling offensive pass interference. And that's not the worst part of what happened yesterday. The worst part is this new, they called it something, in the grasp. That's my favorite. There's a new in the grasp rule. This is making sure that the NFL is protecting its quarterbacks, but they're protecting them to the point that they've gone overboard. It used to be that we had to protect against concussions. Why did the NFL have to protect against concussions? Do you think it's because they care about the safety of their players? No. They started caring about concussions the minute a class action lawsuit got filed by former players who were suffering from dementia and dying young and suing. That's when the NFL started making rules about concussions and protocol. Where was that protocol in the 80s and 90s when people were getting hit and they were getting smelling salts, Toradol, and get yourself back on the field? That only changed because of a lawsuit. Not all of a sudden a change in the moral compass of the NFL. Not even close. But now, as happens, they've gone too far. Last night in overtime, Russell Wilson was trying to evade a sack. He was doing a great job moving his team down the field. Third down play, second down play, it doesn't matter, call it second down, and he's in the grasp, which means the defensive player is grabbing onto his jersey or onto his thigh pad or onto the back of his neck or his hair, anything, except Russell Wilson then got out of it and ran for a gain of seven yards. But they blew the play down. Well, the NFL has now mandated against one of the most exciting plays in football. It's when the quarterback has the ability to scramble outside the pocket and actually, if he can't find a receiver, gain yardage. I can't understand why the NFL is trying to get rid of that. Oh, now I get it. Hold on. Yes, I'm just being told what the reason is. That's what it is. Because they don't want the quarterbacks to get hit, of course. They don't want them to get hurt because they're the stars. Well, now they've gone too far because by protecting their stars, they're making it so their stars can't be stars. And if a star can't be a star on the field while playing, they're not going to be a star off the field. Who wants to do a commercial or an endorsement with a backup quarterback or a starting quarterback that goes 1-15 in or never makes the playoffs? You want endorsements from winners. And to win, you have to be a playmaker. And to be a playmaker, you have to be allowed to make plays. The NFL is going to take a look at all of these things, and you're going to start seeing adjustments. This is what we did as a league in baseball and what all leagues do. It's called an overcorrection. Sometimes you'll see in the stock market when a stock goes down too much and then it goes up, because it, but really it's not a good stock, so you shouldn't buy it. We used to call it a dead cat bounce, meaning dead cats bounce, but guess what happens? They're still dead. So overcorrection is when you want to try to stop players from getting hurt, you make rules, but now you're playing flag football. So I look for the NFL to have some sort of correction, and it's going to happen very shortly because I can't stand watching what I was watching. I just can't. I'll tell you what I loved watching, though. This was fun. I, um, you guys watch, uh, you have to have Instagram. It's this app. It's a purple app on my phone that's called Instagram. And everyone posts pictures, and 80% of them are asinine. And I'm guilty of that, too. Like, who cares about what I'm doing? Or, or I, even I don't care sometimes. But once in a while, there's these stories or videos, and some of them are live. Now we're getting into something interesting. Live stories on Instagram. 
Now let's take it another step. How about a live Instagram story inside a place that I've never been that I'd love to go, like a locker room or a clubhouse? Now let's go a step further. Let's do a live Instagram story inside a clubhouse while we're listening to a coach talk. That's what happened at LSU after their huge win over Alabama. The LSU coach gave a live conversation, which is normal. You meet your team after a win. You wouldn't expect to have happen what happened. Can we please go to the sound? Do we have that, Coca? We're going to beat their ass in recruiting. We're going to beat their ass every time they see us. You understand that? Yes, sir. Roll that. What you? Okay, so just to be clear. Here's what he said. That was the coach of LSU. Suffice to say, it ended with roll tide and then F the tide. Like beep the tide. I don't know if you could hear the beep, but I could in my ear. So this was a live Instagram story of a very fired up coach who was basically cursing out another team. And it went to DEFCON 2 in college football and at LSU. So here's the problem. We have rules in our clubhouse, no cell phones allowed. That's a full Major League Baseball rule. There's two reasons for that. One, we it's a gambling issue. We don't want players on their phones giving any sort of information that's going on in the clubhouse to anyone who can use that on the gambling side. Two, it's a privacy issue. We don't want unnecessary filming of naked guys. Three, it's a clubhouse camaraderie issue where there's stuff that goes on in the clubhouse. We had a rule. It was a very simple rule. What goes on in the clubhouse stays in the clubhouse. And yes, we had that before Vegas. What happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. We had it earlier. What happens in the clubhouse stays in the clubhouse. What happened in LSU is a complete violation. How would I handle it? Number one, every single cell phone is gone upon walking into the clubhouse. There are artists who are beginning to do this now at concerts. I don't know if you've heard about this. If you walk into certain venues, Madonna's new concert is one. You actually have to lock up your cell phone in in a lockbox. There's a show on Broadway that's done by Lin-Manuel Miranda, the guy who wrote and developed Hamilton. It's a freestyle Love Supreme show where they basically are doing riffs off the cuff and they don't want any of them to be recorded. It used to be you just made an announcement. No recording, no flashes. Well, those days are over. Everyone's got a camera now. Everyone has the ability to record and then disseminate that information illegally. Take away the cell phones. There's no reason for players to be on their phones inside the clubhouse. They need to be interacting with their teammates. They need to be interacting with their coaching staff. I couldn't stand walking into our clubhouse and seeing guys face down, especially because we had a rule about no cell phones. And it just causes sort of a 25 guys, 25 cabs scenario. That's an expression, 25 guys, 25 cabs, by the way. That's for a team that doesn't get along well. We talked about Martin Prado in a show earlier on Nothing Personal and how he was someone who brought a team together. That's called 25 guys, one cab, and that's what you look for in a team. But when everyone's on his or her cell phone, you don't have that. And the embarrassment that now is coming out with these live Instagram stories, it's embarrassing to the coaches who are in a moment of exuberance, sometimes irrational exuberance. They're saying things they don't want out there and they shouldn't have to worry about being out there. But now the result is coaches have to be more careful and that ruins their ability to do what they're so good at, which is motivating, getting their team fired up, their players fired up. And now they've got to worry about being recorded and being on live Instagram. That better be taken care of. 
immediately. Tell you what's also being taken care of, a uh, ticket salespeople at the Chicago White Sox. This is a story that uh, has interested me for a while. I've been following it, and here's why. The FBI's involved, and anytime the FBI's involved in Major League Baseball, you know something good's going on. So here's the story, and here's how it happens. In Major League Baseball and in every sport, if you work for a team, one of the perks of working for a team is you have access to tickets. You have access to tickets to your team's home games. If your team sells out, which the Marlins never did, you would still get access to tickets, but they would be sort of upper deck tickets. With the Marlins, we would give lower deck tickets, but employees would always have access to free tickets. Now, what would people do with those free tickets? We encouraged our employees to go give them to people who would then convert into either daily ticket buyers or season ticket buyers. Use your free tickets wisely. Try to find a way to get someone to engage in the team because the level of engagement starts with knowing there's a team, knowing they're playing a game, knowing what the score is, watching a little bit of a game, watching all the game, then going to a game, then going to five games, then being a season ticket holder. It's called the roller coaster of fan engagement and the roller coaster of getting people's money. So we need people going up that roller coaster at all times. Well, the White Sox employees thought something different. Why don't we take these complimentary tickets that I have access to and why don't I sell them on StubHub and get people to buy them and then pocket the money and then probably not report it? That's a good idea. And that happened. And now it's under investigation. So this is what happened with the Marlins. We had a group of people who we had a fire because we found out and we had no FBI involvement. We did not involve anybody because we found out about ourselves and we fired the employees and took care of it. We did not report it to the authorities. We took it because we decided we were going to handle it on our own, which we did. What happened was that we had employees who were actually getting kickbacks. They were taking tickets. They were paying us for the tickets, which we allowed if you wanted to buy postseason tickets face value, then they were reselling them at a profit. That's not legal. Or they were taking tickets, pretending they were for other people, and they were actually giving them to people who were not supposed to get them, ticket resellers. So what this White Sox employee was purportedly doing was taking these tickets and listing them on StubHub. Can you imagine the idiocy of this employee who actually took the tickets and didn't even use an intermediary and tried to sell them on StubHub? Or he did use an intermediary in addition. This is a multi-million dollar business. The ticket resale business. Have you ever been on StubHub? Have you ever looked at the fees they charge you? Do you know the profitability of the secondary ticket market? Do you know we could do an entire segment, and we will, on the fact that secondary markets are way more important than primary markets to an individual team? The primary market is me selling my tickets to a customer who's going to go to a game. The secondary market is somebody else buying a ticket from somebody else who bought a ticket from us. Well, wait a minute. I want to know who the person is in my ballpark. I want to get to that second person who bought the ticket from the person who bought the ticket from us. I want chain of custody. I want privity. That's a legal word meaning I want a relationship. I want to know everything about my person in my ballpark so I can sell them more things. This is not about a social experiment wanting to know who's in your ballpark. It's not about reporting attendance numbers. It's not about any of that. It's about upselling, making more money, 
Sorry, Stu, but it is. We are there to make more money. So why is it such an issue that the FBI and MLB gets involved with? What? Because the secondary market has to be controlled, which is why MLB does a deal specifically with StubHub. There's ticketing deals where you have exclusive secondary markets. If you go on an NFL website, you get taken to the Ticketmaster website when you want to buy tickets. That's not a mistake. Ticketmaster pays for that. They pay the teams hundreds of millions of dollars for the right to be the secondary market for tickets. But when you've got people who have access to the primary market, who are taking advantage of that access and using it to undersell the secondary market, guess who's not happy? the secondary market. Guess what happens? You get in trouble, you lose your job, the FBI gets involved, and it becomes a pretty big to-do. It's gonna be interesting to see whether charges get pressed. It'll be interesting to see what happens actually at the end of the day, not to the employee, because the employee's gonna be fired, if he hasn't already or she hasn't already, but what the leagues are gonna do to protect the financial relationships they have with the secondary market. I binged a show this weekend that was uh, surprising to me, and uh, I'm not going to get verklempt, but I I did while watching the show, and if you don't know Yiddish, you're going to learn a lot of Yiddish by watching and listening to Nothing Personal, and I thank you for watching and listening and subscribing. Don't forget the five-star rating. Those actually matter, and you can follow me on Twitter, David P. Sampson. There's an occasional ratio. You never know, but I love romantic comedies. I love emotional movies or shows because I actually own stock in Kleenex. So I watched a show called Modern Love. If you haven't watched it, how come? Is it because you're too macho? Is it because you think it's just for girls? It's girly? Well, no, it's not. It's for everyone. It's basically an eight-episode season, and they're all a half hour. And each episode is a separate love story of all shapes and sizes. It's not, it's not about sex. It's about love. The first episode is about a young woman who lives in a New York City apartment, and it's the relationship she has with her doorman. And the name of the show is When Your Doorman Is Your Main Man. And it's maybe the best 30 minutes of any show I've seen all year. So please go watch it. And then it goes all the way through the eighth episode, which is about old love and finding love in your fourth and fifth chapter in life after your spouse has passed away in your 70s or 80s or 90s. And the fact that love can exist at that age and how that manifests itself. And then what happens when you lose that love. And then at the end, all the stories come together in a way that fascinates me. This show was put together by John Carney, John Carney has done movies like Begin Again with Mark Ruffalo, like Once, Sing Street, which is a movie I may review on Nothing Personal. He is a great movie maker. Take a look at these episodes. Anne Hathaway gives a stellar performance in one of the episodes. You've got Dev Patel, spectacular as well. And you're just very surprised, is what I'll say, that you can be drawn into the storyline. You will be emotional You're guaranteed to well up, I did. You're guaranteed to use Kleenex, not tissues. Please use Kleenex. And let me know after you've watched Modern Love. So the other thing that we try to do uh, is bring up stories to you that are so beyond comprehension that they need to be discussed because they're important and they are gonna make a difference. 
I spent two years working in Montreal for the Montreal Expos, and I loved being in Montreal. And the one thing I can tell you about Canada is they prefer hockey. Let's face it. It's not about the CFL. It's not about baseball. Even though they love their Blue Jays, they didn't really love their Expos that they're pretending to now. It's a hockey country, as it should be. And the symbol of that hockey is Don Cherry, an 85-year-old who likes wearing fun jackets. Well, Don Cherry said the following thing on his show this weekend, and it was the last thing he will ever say on camera in Canada. I live in Ontario. Very few people wear the poppy. That's a pin for Veterans Day, really. Downtown Toronto, forget it. Nobody wears the poppy. Now you go to the small cities. You people, emphasis added, you people that come here, whatever it is, you love our way of life, you love our milk and honey, at least you can pay a couple of bucks for a poppy or something like that. These guys paid for your way of life that you enjoy in Canada. Don, can I explain to you what's going on in the world right now? Uh, You can't say those words. You can't say you people. And you can't use the fact that you're 85 as an excuse. What you said was racist. You were talking about the immigrants. That's a touchy subject these days as well as it should be. The original immigrants were actually us when the Native Americans started here on our land. It wasn't our land. Their land. We took it to be our land. So we are all immigrants. Why are people sensitive about it? Because they should be. Why should an 85-year-old man have to think about what he's saying? The answer is the world has changed. Back 40 years ago, it took Jimmy the Greek or Al Campanis to say incredibly racist things that would get them fired. But it didn't happen all that often, and it was mostly based on race relations. There was not a lot of conversation about the Me Too, Me Too movement. There was not a lot of sexual harassment, equal pay, gender equality. There was not a lot of that going on only 30, 40 years ago. But think about the progress we've all made. We've made it to the point that the downside of the progress, and I say this to be quoted, the downside of the progress is that everyone who has a microphone better be damn careful. And I'm good with it because I take the microphone every day for 45 minutes and I'm very aware that one of these days will be my last day. Some of you may want it today. Some of you may want it to be in 30 years. But there will be a time where mistakes get made. That doesn't mean that I deep down am a mean, hateful, spiteful person. I had a Twitter about paternity leave. I tweeted about paternity leave. I got ratioed. I got in trouble from my bosses at CBS. And I was told, you know, be smarter, which I try to think I'm smart. And all I was saying is I want a player to make it to a game. I wasn't saying don't go to the birth. I was saying go to the birth, make sure the kid's healthy, and then go to your game. And by the way, every player and owner with whom I spoke off the record agreed with me. That's the irony. So the question is, how do you say something when when you're lucky enough to have a platform that I have, when you're lucky enough to be Don Cherry, the ultimate spokesman for hockey in Canada? How do you know when it's too far, and how do you take the chance? What was he really saying if you asked him today? He was saying that he wishes more people supported veterans in Canada. Say it that way. That's a positive. We talked about it yesterday for Veterans Day. Let's not thank them on Veterans Day. Let's thank them every day. That's all he was saying. 
But when you put in euphemisms like you people or you attack people by either race or gender or color or creed or religion, you are going into a zone that you should not, cannot, and need not go into to make your point. My point about Daniel Hudson was not saying that he's a bad guy for watching his kid get born. No. My point was you owe it to your teammates to find a way on a private plane to get to the game in St. Louis. They were playing the cards at that time. Don Cherry's point was very simple. If you have an extra dollar, instead of buying a cup of coffee that day, buy one of these pins. Today, let's think about the veterans and what they've done. But he didn't have the frame of mind. He didn't have his faculties with him to frame it in the right way, and he had no choice but to resign. He didn't really resign. He was obviously fired. But someone like Don Cherry, you give him a chance to resign. And he'll never, never be heard from again. But guess who will be heard from again? Many, many people who have microphones and platforms, all of whom at one point or another are going to get ratioed. Because if you're not saying anything interesting, then you're just another gas bag. And you've got nothing good to say and no one cares. No one's going to listen to you. Why did Don Cherry become such a great voice in hockey? Why are people right now on radio and TV and podcasts, who gets paid the most money? Ones who are the most interesting. Not who are right all the time. Not who have the most inside sources. I was a league executive. I could give a source anything I wanted. And half the time it would be bullcrap. I would do it purposefully. No, the people who make a difference cut through the noise. It's what we do at CBS HQ. We cut through the noise. We give analysis. We are the place to be for breaking news on the field, fantasy, gambling. You come to nothing personal right now, you're here for a reason. You want to hear what really goes on inside the world of sports and business and entertainment. I will decode things for you. Does that mean I'm taking a risk every day? I don't view it that way because I'm careful and my mouth is always behind my brain, not ahead of it. When your mouth's ahead of your brain, you get in trouble. It's what happened to Don. Sayonara, Don Cherry. You got it wrong. Well, I'll tell you what I haven't gotten wrong in a while is my pick of the day. God, what a coca. Do you like that segue? That was staggering. He's not talking, which only means he's not listening. The pick of the day yesterday, uh, if you didn't take Seattle in the money line, then you must have been following John on Twitter, John D right here from HQ, because he thought it was a sucker bet to take Seattle. And it wasn't. Not only did Seattle cover, but they won the game. So you got more than two to one on your money if you downloaded, subscribed, and reviewed nothing personal. So I'm going to give you another one to win tonight. Whatever John bets, take the other way. No? Okay, true. You don't know what he bets. So I'm just going to give it to you. I'm taking the Knicks plus 10. Why? Because it's the Fitzdale game. Here's what I mean by that. Yesterday, we covered this. David Fitzdale's job is on the hot seat, to say the least. We talked about this earlier in the show with my Mia Culpa word of the day. This is the type of game, Fizdale, thank you. This is the type of game, I'm so bad with names, that Coca is in my ear the entire show, correcting how I pronounce names and which names. Coca, this is me. Love me or hate me. I'm going to get them wrong, so keep giving them to me right. Is it Fizdale? Okay. David Fisdale is on the hot seat, whoever, just call him Coach David. The question is how do players respond? It will be very telling. If the Knicks get blown out tonight, they have shut out their coach, given up on their coach, and that's the end. If they win tonight, 
That's a statement game to their president and GM talking about, we believe in our coach, Fizdale, and we want him to stay. If they cover but still lose, it means that you made yourself a good bet and you got yourself a winner. Well, we got the uh, manager of the year being announced tonight. And our wait to sees hit yesterday. We had Alvarez as the AL Rookie of the Year unanimously. And now we're, and we had Alonzo NL. So we're doing well with the wait to sees. Accountability, it matters. Tonight, we're continuing on with our theme because it is award season in Major League Baseball. Why would I give Aaron Boone the American League Manager of the Year? Because he deserves it. Not because I know him. Not because he's probably one of the funniest, most interesting guys I ever had on the team. No, it's because he deserves it. What he did with that injured team, it was a spring training squad, game after game, and won 103 games and won their division running away. It's not his fault they didn't make the World Series. It's Cashman's fault they didn't get starting pitching. We're going to talk a lot more about Cashman and starting pitching in the coming days during these GM meetings. Aaron Boone is my pick for manager of the year. Why do I have Mike Schilt beating Craig Council and Snicker of Atlanta, Brian, and also Dave Martinez, who wasn't even a finalist? Why? Because what he did with the cards to win that NL Central, the only one who picked the cards to make the playoffs? No, I can't remember anyone. Because they had to go through the Cubs and the Brewers, and they did it. Schilt wins Manager of the Year, and he deserves to win Manager of the Year. As I sit here and think about all the things we talked about today, it is critical for you to remember as you re-listen, it's just business. It's nothing personal. And unfortunately, we'll have to wait till Friday for the next edition of Nothing Personal. There is no show on Wednesday or Thursday. See you then. It's happening daily. We're being conned by the institutions we used to trust. The mainstream media is distracting us with meaningless headlines instead of focusing on the harsh realities facing American families. Time is short before something big happens, and that's why so many folks are preparing. They're becoming self-reliant by investing in emergency food storage from My Patriot Supply. Go to MyPatriotSupply.com and secure four-week emergency food kits for each member of your family. Each kit contains tasty breakfasts, lunches, and dinners, averaging over 2,000 calories per day. Save $50 on each four-week food kit you purchase. Plus, get free shipping on Ready Hour four-week emergency food kits. You're not ready if it's not Ready Hour foods. At My Patriot Supply, you can also get solar power generators, water filtration units, heirloom seeds, and survival gear. Order by 3 p.m., and your unmarked boxes ship the same day. Shop MyPatriotSupply.com today. MyPatriotSupply.com